Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. It is a brand new month, we're entering March, and this month's theme is the evolution of Superman, one of the most enduring superhero characters of all time. This week we're looking at 1978 Superman, also known as Superman the Movie, and I actually adjusted my plans a little bit as I was doing research. I thought maybe I could do this story a little bit later on, but it's just so compelling. Next week we will look at Superman 2, which is credited to director Richard Lester, as well as the Richard Donner cut of the same film which came out many many years after the original film after that we're going to look at superman returns the attempt to recapture the magic of the richard donner years and we're going to wrap up the month by looking at man of steel Zack snyder's 2013 version of the man of steel that looked to completely reinvent the dc universe before we get started, if you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, thank you very much for watching. And if you'd like to hear it as an audio podcast, you can find it on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us and you want to see the video that goes along with the show, you can check us out on the Schmodown Entertainment Network on YouTube. I want the name of this flying whatchamacallit to go with the Daily Planet like bacon and eggs, ranks and beans, death and taxes. Politics and corruption. By the time Superman the movie was released in 1978, the character of Superman was already 40 years old, having been created in 1938 by the duo of Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And Superman had already leapt out of the comic book pages as well. There was a very popular radio serial that had run throughout the 1940s, along with a very influential series of Fleischer Studios cartoons. There were also two Superman movie serials and the film Superman in the Mole Men, which came out in 1950. It was intended to be an introduction to George Reeves as Superman. He would go on to play him on television for six seasons in the 1950s. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. In the 1960s and 70s, you could still find Superman on television, but in a couple of cartoon series aimed at kids, one of them called The New Adventures of Superman, and as the anchoring lead force behind the Super Friends. Created from the cosmic legends of the universe, Superman. Given Superman's enduring popularity, the idea of doing a Superman major motion picture in the 1970s should have been an easy decision, made even easier by the fact that a major studio, Warner Brothers, already owned the company that owned the rights to the Man of Steel. Warners actually owned DC Comics. They could have made it anytime they wanted to. Nobody thought that this would make a very good picture. In 1974, a young producer named Ilya Salkind, along with his father, Alexander Salkind, and their producing partner, Pierre Spangler, pitched DC on the idea of buying the rights to the character of Superman to make a movie. Following much negotiation with DC, the Salkins and Spangler secured permission to make a film about Superman and went to Warner Brothers, who agreed to distribute the film domestically, but not put up the money for the film's budget. It would be up to the Salkins and Spangler to put up the money for the movie, and Warner Brothers would buy the movie after it was completed. You develop the script, you package or cast the movie and find a director and everyone that's going to be required to make it. Financing of it and the manufacture of it and then finally the delivery of it are your responsibility. After the original director of Superman, Guy Hamilton, was forced to step aside, the producers offered the director's chair to Richard Donner, who at that time was hot off The Omen, a big box office hit. And Richard Donner got the call to direct Superman in his very own Fortress of Solitude. I was sitting on the toilet on a Sunday morning and the phone rang. And this strange Hungarian voice said, this is Alexander Salkine. He said, I'm making Superman. I would like you to direct it. 
He said, I'll pay you a million dollars. I said, you'll pay me a million dollars. He said, I'll pay you a million dollars. He said, it's two pictures. Once Donner signed on to the project, his first monumental task was to somehow manage an unwieldy script. The final screenplay credit goes to Godfather author Mario Puzo, along with David Newman, Leslie Newman, and Robert Benton. But in reality, it was Tom Mankiewicz, who's credited as a creative consultant on the film, who crafted much of what you see, not only for 1978's Superman the Movie, but the sequel, Superman 2. The two movies had been written as one huge script because they were intended to be shot at the same time. So Mankiewicz not only had to break down which parts went to which movie, he also had to manage the tone of the film, which he didn't believe that audiences would respond to. The script as I got it, just from sheer length situation, had to be cut in half. Also, there had to be a radical change in tone to do it the way Dick wanted to do it. Their approach was Kind of a parody on a parody. Tom Mankiewicz was already Hollywood royalty. His father, Joseph Mankiewicz, was the multi-Academy Award winning writer and director of All About Eve. And his uncle, Herman Mankiewicz, co-wrote the film Citizen Kane with Orson Welles, among others. As a matter of fact, there was just a film made about his uncle called Mank from David Fincher. Tom Mankiewicz had already made his own name as the writer of several James Bond films starring Sean Connery and Roger Moore, and he was guided by Richard Donner's famous but very unwieldy mantra, verisimilitude, which means a commitment to the truth. And as weird as it seems, Donner felt very strongly that audiences needed to see the truth behind a man flying around in red boots and a cape. I have a sign to this day in my office of Superman flying through the air, dragging assigned by him that says verisimilitude because the story had to have its own honesty. Everybody had to believe it was real. This technique of audience immersion was at risk very early on as the Salkins felt pressured to cast a recognizable face as Superman. It does make believing a man can fly a lot harder if the face of that man is somebody that they've already seen on the silver screen and in their homes for years. I thought it should be an unknown at the beginning. There's a moment where you weaken, and I said, well, you might be right. So we started looking for stars. My problem with it was I would have a very difficult time seeing them fly. If you didn't believe Superman could fly, then you didn't believe Superman was alive. It was real. Thank God, uh, Redford turned it down. Producers conducted a worldwide search for the right person to play the Man of Steel and were coming up empty until one face in particular caught the eye of legendary casting director Lynn Stallmaster, a then 24-year-old actor known mostly for stage work named Christopher Reeve. Well, it's not exactly your average Joe who can deliver an airmail letter without putting a stamp on it. I wouldn't do that, Lois. That's against the law. One quick note about Lynn Stallmaster. He wasn't just responsible for finding Christopher Reeve as Superman. He is one of the most legendary casting directors in the business and racked up a string of hits throughout his career. He cast films including In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, Fiddler on the Roof, Harold and Maude, Deliverance, and The Last Detail before even working on Superman. And he would go on to cast movies like Tootsie, Being There, First Blood, and The Right Stuff, among many, many others. Dozens of actors in Hollywood owe some or all of their careers to Lynn Stallmaster and the movies that he helped to cast them in. And in 2017, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences awarded Lynn Stallmaster an honorary Academy Award, the first time anyone in the casting realm had been granted this honor. Lynn Stallmaster actually passed away just last month in Los Angeles at the age of 93, a true titan in the casting industry. 
Thanks largely to Stallmaster's persistence, Christopher Reeve had the part of Superman, but producers were a little worried that he didn't look the part of Superman. They thought that he might be too skinny. And there were several ideas floated, including constructing a muscle suit for Reeve to wear underneath the Superman costume. But Reeve was very determined to make sure that he could transform his body naturally. And so he was paired up with another icon who had just broken out the previous year, David Prowse, perhaps best known as the man inside the Darth Vader costume to transform his lanky body into the buff man of steel. I tell you, I tell you I'm on a high meat diet, protein diet, uh, vitamin pills, nothing like steroids or anything like that, but... Um I mean, I get to eat as much of as anything that I want, and it's it's great. While Christopher Reeve had a pretty short time to start bulking up to play Superman, Richard Donner and the crew of the film had an even bigger time crunch due to two of the big stars that they'd cast in the film. The first was Marlon Brando, who was paid a kingly sum of over $3 million plus a percentage of the profits of the movie to play Jor-El, the father of Superman. And Brando approached this huge payday with typical Marlon Brando whatever you would call it. Everything has a price in the marketplace, and uh, so do cars, so do hula hoops, so do useless endeavors, and uh, uh, I don't suppose that actors are any different than rock bands that uh, inflate balloons from their ears. As Superman's arch-nemesis Lex Luthor, Gene Hackman, was cast, despite his initial reticence to even consider the project due to Luther's comic book origins. I was afraid that my image as a serious actor would be tarnished and... Uh... <laughs> I had thought of him only as a cartoon character. Getting both Hackman and Brando on board was a real coup for the Salkins and Richard Donner because it gave Superman instant credibility and instant legitimacy. But the flip side of that is that it added an incredible amount of time pressure. Because these were two of the biggest working actors in the world, they also had incredibly busy schedules. And the crew of Superman found that they had very short windows in order to film everything for both Hackman and Brando. This was complicated even more by the fact that they had to film not just one movie, but two movies worth of stuff with both actors before time was up. Brando and Hackman had been signed, and they were locked into start dates. You couldn't fool around with them. And I'm remembering something like we got on the picture like at Christmas and we were going to shoot in June. Six months is no time to prepare a huge picture like this. Marlon Brando's scenes on Krypton, or as he pronounces it, the planet Krypton, were the first scenes shot for the film. And while Brando's performance is what you'd expect by an actor of his caliber, many crew members were shocked that he insisted on keeping cue cards, as he had done on many other films, including The Godfather, stashed around the set in order to read his lines. Now, some people might write this off as lazy, but Brando thinks a little bit differently. For him, he just wanted to give his performance a spontaneous reality. If you don't know what the words are, but you have a general idea of what they are, then you look at the cue card, it gives you the feeling as the viewer, hopefully, that the person is really searching for what he's going to say. He doesn't know what he's going to say. Cue cards aside, it is very easy to see why Brando was pursued so heavily for the role of Jor-El, because he brings the weight that this film needs in order to set things up. First, as the judge of General Zod, Nan, and Ursa, who would go on to be the villains for the next movie. Finally, General Zod, chief architect of this intended revolution and author of this insidious plot, 
to establish a new order amongst us. Then as the harbinger of doom for the eventual destruction of Krypton, the Al Gore of his time on that planet. This planet will explode within 30 days, if not sooner. Jor-El, be reasonable. My friend, I have never been otherwise. There is definitely a lot of 70s weirdness going on with Krypton slash Krypton. The crystals, the day glow clothes, but I think the thing that makes it work is that it does really look like an alien world. There is nothing recognizable from Earth anywhere in the production design or the costuming, the technology. Krypton looks like a truly advanced alien civilization, and I think you have to achieve that successfully in order for the character of Superman to work later on. He has to be the ultimate outsider. And I think that they established this so well through the combination of the brilliant production design and construction, the special effects, and Brando's performance. That's what helps the movie pay off later on and why you actually take any of this seriously. You will carry me inside you. All the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. Ironically, one person who really wasn't that impressed with Marlon Brando or the experience of working with him was Superman himself, Christopher Reeve. A few years after Superman the movie came out, Reeve told talk show host David Letterman that he found the legendary actor's efforts lacking. Was it exciting to work with him, though? Not really, no. <laughs> no. I had a wonderful time, but the man didn't care. I'm sorry. He just, you know, took the two million and ran. And I just care so much that it hurts when someone's phoning it in. Yeah. Uh, he is a wonderful actor. He is a brilliant man. But at this moment, he just isn't uh, motivated. That's all I mean to say. As the planet Krypton meets its final doom, the ship with baby Kal-El rockets through space toward its intended place of Earth. And I actually really like how they set this up. The fact that he was sent to Earth specifically because Jarrell wanted him to go to a place where he would be superior. I like the idea that he's even educated as he's going through space on how Earth works, what civilization there is like, what the role of a Superman on Earth can be. Now, ultimately, he defies a lot of what his father says, but again, I think that Christopher Reeve's character works because you do so much great setup before you even see him on screen to understand that Superman is superior to us, but he also understands us and he has empathy for us. He is a true superhero who sees the best in humanity and desperately wants us to realize our potential. Kal-El's ship crashes on Earth near Smallville, Kansas, where he's found by Jonathan and Martha Kent. Martha Kent was played by Phyllis Thaxter, who was mother-in-law to producer Ilya Salkin, while Jonathan Kent was played by Glenn Ford, one of the most popular leading men of the 1940s and 50s. Much like Brando, Glenn Ford makes a lot out of very limited screen time by playing a very sympathetic father who's helping to usher a frustrated young Clark Kent through adolescence and to help him realize that he has a great purpose to serve on Earth. There's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. I don't know whose reason, whatever the reason is, you know, maybe it's because... Uh, I don't know, it's... Uh, Glenn Ford was actually one of my paternal grandmother's favorite actors, and I remember whenever I would watch this movie at her house, she would always be very happy to see Glenn Ford pop up on screen. And in a very weird way, this movie was also one of my earliest exposures to the idea of mortality, because I remember my grandmother explaining what was happening when Glenn Ford grabs his arm, and the concept of a heart attack, the concept that he was dying. Oh no. 
When you're young, you don't always know what these things mean. And Superman the movie was one of the earliest times that I think I grappled with the concept of death. Movies are weird that way. Following his Earth father's death, Clark heads north and, using Kryptonian technology, constructs the Fortress of Solitude, where he's able to interact with the memories and experiences of Jor-El. Here, over the course of 12 years, he learns even more about his adopted home of Earth and grows into Superman. This shot is also the first time that we see Superman take flight, which was an especially difficult task for the production team in the pre-digital era of special effects. And while the final efforts were a combination of wire work, blue screen compositing, and front projection, there were some very funny missteps along the way as they experimented with how to get Superman into the air. We actually catapulted a model Superman out of an air mortar. We didn't like the effect. There wasn't enough movement. And it's here nearly an hour into the film that we're first introduced to Christopher Reeve, but not as Superman, as Clark Kent. And I think that his performance as Clark Kent is every bit as good, perhaps even more so, than his performance as Superman. Because again, Reeve and the writers and director understand what Clark Kent's purpose is. It's basically a smokescreen. The Daily Planet has a tradition. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to shake it up like that. Oh, well, of course not, Lois. I mean, why would anyone want to make a total stranger look like a fool? Superman has to make Clark Kent so inept, so weak, so incompetent that no one would ever suspect that he was really Superman. I mean, after all, his only disguise is a pair of glasses. His persona is the real disguise, and Christopher Reeve gets that, although he also allows himself a little wink to the camera every now and then, such as when he stops a mugger from killing Lois Lane by deftly catching the bullet from his gun, but pretending to faint. You fainted. Sorry. This is also the part of the movie where we're introduced to Clark's job as a reporter at the Daily Planet and to Margot Kidder's Lois Lane, who is far more than the one-note damsel in distress that we saw in some other iterations of Superman. The Lois Lane of this universe is a hungry, driven young reporter who has no time for this hayseed Clark Kent and sees the scoop of the century when Superman comes to town. And Margot Kidder brought much of herself to the role of Lois Lane, fueled again by Donner's drive to be 100 100% true and authentic. My Lois Lane came, I suppose, physically from New York, emotionally, which is the way I tend to go about it, and in terms of the different parts that make up her brain and her psyche, I guess she came from me because uh, I had nothing else to go on. With our heroes introduced, it's also time to meet our villains, led by one of the most inept but also hilarious henchmen of all time, Ned Beatty's Otis. I'm one step above a moron. I have terribly good intentions, but I'm awfully bad bad guy. <laughs> the character of Lex Luthor is written so well, but Otis is such great comic relief alongside Valerie Perrin, who plays Miss Teskmacher, Luthor's assistant. Miss Teskmacher, when I was six years old, my father said to me, get out. <laughs> Before that. You know, in my life, I've hummed a lot of different music while I'm walking around the house or the street or whatever, but I think that John Williams' Otis theme might be the one that I've hummed the most.
I think that John Williams' score for Superman is overlooked when people talk about his best movie scores, but we're going to have more about John Williams' music later. I do want to introduce, however, another John, and that is John Barry, who, like Lynn Stallmaster, I think is one of the unsung heroes of Superman. John Barry was the production designer on Superman. He'd just come off a little movie called Star Wars, and he helped to bring the world to life, from the icy cold of the Fortress of Solitude to the glass-encased newsroom of the Daily Planet to Lex Luthor's Lair, which is such a great set. You have the library, you have a swimming pool, and you have a supervillain must, an oversized map for plotting and scheming. It's a set that's worthy of Hackman's performance, which is one of the best comic book movie villain performances of all time. Some people can read War and Peace and come away thinking it's a simple adventure story. Others can read the ingredients on a chewing gum wrapper and unlock the secrets of the universe. And again, I love the angle that they took on his character. They didn't use the famous business tycoon that we often see in the comic books and other adaptations. Instead, this Lex Luthor has literally been driven underground, seething at the fact that his criminal genius is going undervalued and underappreciated. And I think that that is such a great spark that Hackman is able to use that anger to really drive his performance for both comedy and, let's be honest, the guy is pretty cold and calculating. I mean, he racks up a body count in this movie. Is that how a warped brain like yours gets its kicks? By planning the death of innocent people? No. By causing the death of innocent people. It also helps that it's pretty obvious that Gene Hackman is having a pretty great time playing a pretty bad guy. Everything on this side of the line is just hundreds and hundreds of miles of worthless desert land, which just still happens to be <laughs> With all the introductions pretty much out of the way, we get to the first superhero sequence of the film when Lois Lane's news chopper crashes, leaving her dangling off the side of the Daily Planet building. And this is where we get one of the most iconic shots in superhero cinema as Christopher Reeve runs toward camera, opening his shirt to reveal the yellow, blue, and red Superman costume underneath. Reeves' heroics and the first interaction between Superman and Lois are punctuated by a great line that the two actors reportedly worked out together while they were on set. Easy, miss. I've got you. you you've got me? Who's got you? I think it also says a lot about Reeves' charisma in the part and the setup that they've done to Superman's character that you don't laugh at the fact that he can be a bit of a square. Well, I certainly hope this little incident hasn't put you off flying, miss. Statistically speaking, of course, it's... Still the safest way to travel. What I think works is that Reeve in his performance never brings this kind of naive cluelessness to his role. It's a quality that actually worked for Chris Evans when he was playing Captain America. Instead, we get the sense that Superman is in on this with us, that we, the audience, and he, the character, are the only two that really know what's going on, and there's an unspoken bond and sometimes even a communication between us and Superman. Reeve never directly winks at the camera like they used to do on the old Superman TV show, but he's so confident and assured in his performance that he doesn't have to. And at the same time, there's no cynicism in this portrayal of Superman. He is driven by an incorruptible sense of good. Who are you? A friend. The helicopter scene is great, but I also love the sequence that follows, which is basically a night on the town for Superman as he breaks up various different kinds of crime, big crime and small crime. He apprehends a jewel thief, he stops some criminals who are running from the police. I mean, he saves the President of the United States and Air Force One, but also takes the time to save a little girl's cat from a tree. 
Although I think Superman should have stuck around there for a few more minutes because this little girl has a very dark home life that I think needed a little intervention. Superman swooped at his sky and gave him to me. Haven't I told you to stop telling lies? But my favorite scene in the entire movie is the rooftop scene between Superman and Lois Lane. And how big are you? How tall are you? Uh, about 6'4". And it is a scene that Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder worked on extensively, ultimately deciding that this should be less of an interrogation and more of a flirtation between these two characters. We changed the whole sort of tone of that scene. Uh, because I felt that it must be, that the time had come when Superman would be open enough to, to say that he's there because he really likes her. Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder had such natural chemistry, and it's on such great display in this scene. And it also shows why Richard Donner was such a great choice for this project, because Kidder and Reeve thought that the flirtatious way to go was what felt right for those characters, and that's why it feels so authentic on screen. And Donner was right to allow his actors to follow that instinct and facilitate this. It's a really great scene because we see Superman and Lois kind of flirting with each other and pushing each other's buttons and their limits a little bit, trying to test each other out. It's got the passion of two soulmates meeting for the first time, but it also has the awkwardness of two teenagers going on their first date. Do you have a girlfriend? Uh, no, I don't, but uh, if I did, Miss Lane, you'd be the first to know about it. There's also a nod to a traditional Superman motto, which reportedly played especially well to sneak preview crowds in Washington, D.C., post-Watergate. I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. <laughs> gonna end up fighting every elected official in this country. The scene is capped off with a nighttime flight set to John Williams' beautiful score as Superman whisks Lois around the city. But while the finished scene is pure magic, the shooting of it led to some conflict between Reeve and Kidder, who brought different approaches to the long and arduous shooting days that came for the visual effects shots. Christopher felt very strongly about staying in character all the time. I, on the other hand, got really bored during the flying scenes because there were Chris and I strapped together for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. So I would hide books down my front or try and tease Chris and he'd be going, shut up. And at one point I remember Christopher said, don't you stay in character. And I said, oh Chris, for God's sake, I've been Lois Lane for a year now and all we have to do is look left. Superman then drops Lois Lane off on her balcony and soon reappears as Clark Kent to take her to dinner. And this is actually my favorite moment of acting from Christopher Reeve, I think in the entire Superman franchise, because we see him consider revealing his secret identity to Lois. And as Clark Kent, he removes his glasses and we see him physically transform before our eyes into Superman. His body changes, his voice changes. It is a visible transformation transformation that shows just how much physicality went into this role for Christopher Reeve. Lois, there's something I have to tell you. I'm really... Um, I mean, I, I was, uh, at first, really nervous about tonight. One of the downfalls of a lot of modern superhero movies is that they get too bogged down in these overly complex plots and schemes. Another thing that I like about this movie is that Lex Luthor's plot is really just a backdrop to get to know and appreciate these characters. 
But as supervillain plots go, it's not that bad and it's somewhat simple. Luther hijacks two particularly poorly guarded missiles and sets them on courses opposite of each other. One is headed to Hackensack, New Jersey. The other one is headed to the San Andreas Fault. His plan is to detonate the San Andreas Fault one in order to splinter California off into the sea, while Luther has bought up all of the worthless desert land on the east side of the San Andreas Fault. Thus, Lex Luthor will now become the most wealthy and powerful real estate magnate in the world. Costa del Lex, Lutherville, Marina del Lex, Otisburg, Otisburg. And he almost gets away with it too by discovering kryptonite, remnants of Superman's home planet of Krypton that have traveled to Earth as meteorites. This stuff here will kill him. Superman is rescued by Miss Teskmacher, who makes him promise to save her mother in Hackensack first. And Superman, who never lies, makes good on his word. But this delay results in the bomb hitting the San Andreas Fault, causing catastrophic damage on the West Coast. And while Superman is saving thousands of lives, he's not able to save the life of the person he cares for the most on Earth, Lois Lane, who's crushed and suffocated when her car is swallowed by a fissure that opens up in the Earth. It's here that the decision to develop the Superman-Lois relationship first and foremost pays off the most because we see the disturbing darkness and rage that also comes with the character of Superman. The fact that you can save countless lives, but not the life of the one person that you really need or want to save for yourself. Driven by rage, Superman takes flight and travels fast enough to go back in time, thus ensuring that he can save Lois Lane's life and defying the explicit orders from his father, Jor-El, not to interfere with the course of human history. However, this time travel climax was not intended for this movie. In the original draft of the script, it was Superman 2 that ended with Superman traveling back in time and undoing the damage done by General Zod, Ursa, and Nan. But creative consultant Tom Mankiewicz felt that the payoff to the Superman-Lois relationship and his pain and rage at not being able to save her life justified shifting that to this film instead. With the timeline now adjusted and Lois safe, Superman apprehends Luther and drops him off at prison, where Hackman did allow one return to Luther's lack of roots. Who is it, Superman? Lex Luthor, the greatest criminal mind of our time. And the film ends with a final declaration of peace with humanity. This country is safe against Superman, thanks to you. No, sir. Don't thank me, Warden. We're all part of the same team. And the now famous shot of Superman flying into space and surveying Earth his only real home, smiling at what he sees and flying away into the distance. While the movie ends with Superman smiling, not everybody in the cast and crew was smiling during the process of making Superman. It was a grueling shoot that lasted over a year and a half. Almost everybody from top to bottom was pushed to their absolute limits. And as Margot Kidder recalled later, the presence of Richard Donner was the only redeeming factor for many of the people on the production. The only thing Again, that made them tolerable was knowing that Donner was working twice as hard as you were and getting even less sleep if that was possible. That's your responsibility as a director. You have to generate this energy both for yourself and for 
everybody else. And if it's artificial, you can't let them know. But the long shoot and constant financial pressure began to fray the relationship between Richard Donner and producers Ilya and Alexander Salkind. Though Tom Mankiewicz recalls that the director was never really even given a bullseye to aim for. Dick never in the course of the picture got a budget. He never got a schedule. He was constantly told that he was over schedule, way over budget, but nobody told him what that budget was or how much he was over that budget. With the Christmas 1978 release date of Superman drawing closer, the Salkins made the decision to shut down the shoot despite the fact that Superman 2 was reportedly about 75% complete. The thinking was that everybody could focus their energy on getting the first Superman movie out to theaters and then shooting would resume on the sequel if the movie was a hit. We literally ran out of money and Warner Brothers said, let's put the first one out and see what we've got. While the effects team was working hurriedly to make Superman fly, director Richard Donner was working hurriedly to secure a composer for the movie. The constant production overruns had caused the release date of Superman to change a couple of times from summer 1978 to Christmas 1978. And this resulted in a literal game of musical chairs between two of Hollywood's most famous and talented composers. It was a toss up between Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams. We realized we were gonna go over and, and Jerry Goldsmith would not be available, so I called John. Then we went over, and I lost John Williams. So I went back to Jerry Goldsmith, and then we realized we weren't going to make that date, and, and Jerry was no longer available, and John was available. With respect to Jerry Goldsmith, who is one of the best composers to ever live, I can't imagine anybody doing a better job doing the music for Superman than John Williams. Yes, the Superman theme is incredible, and it is now inextricably tied to that character and will be for as long as the character of Superman is around. But the entire soundtrack is what I call sonic brilliance. You have the mystery of Kal-El's journey through space. Which Einstein called is... You have the spookiness as he uncovers the crystals and finds and discovers the Fortress of Solitude. And you have the beauty of the flying theme. Each and every piece of the Superman score is brilliantly executed, and again, I think John Williams deserves even more credit for it than he already gets. Warner Brothers, who by this time had taken over distributing the film not just domestically, but worldwide as well, got hard at work on the marketing of the movie, and on the back of Star Wars, which had revolutionized the movie landscape the year before, decided to sell Superman as visual effects spectacle. The head of marketing for Superman at Warner Brothers at the time describes this approach and the inception of one of the most memorable movie taglines of all time. The tagline that said, you believe a man can fly, was the single most important part of the whole marketing campaign. It was our way of saying to the ticket-buying world, we've learned how to do things in movies you've never seen before. Superman flew into theaters on December 15th, 1978, and was an immediate hit with both audiences and critics. I think the public is wising up to the fact that the bigger the advanced promotional hype on a film, 
the worse that film probably is. Well, a pleasant surprise this time. Superman is very entertaining. I was surprised that it had a sense of humor. The thing that surprised me about the movie is that among every, along with everything else, it's one of the year's most refreshing comedies. The movie became the highest grossing film of 1978, making $134 million domestically and about $300 million worldwide. If you adjust that for inflation domestically, Superman stands as the 75th highest grossing film of all time with just over $524 million, just below The Sixth Sense and just above Tootsie. Superman was also nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Editing, Best Score, and Best Sound, but lost all three of those awards to The Deer Hunter, Midnight Express, and The Deer Hunter again, respectively. However, the visual effects team was awarded a Special Achievement Oscar for the visual effects in the film. This was in an era where the Academy would just give Special Achievement Awards in categories like visual effects or sound design in years where it was determined that there weren't enough nominees to do it competitively. So Superman's Oscar for visual effects shouldn't be seen as anything less than a win. It's just categorized a little bit differently due to the fact that there were very few movies doing visual effects on the scale of a movie like Superman. On a personal note, I was born a little over four years after Superman the movie came out, but it has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. For a time when I was a kid, I wanted to be Superman, and not just Superman, I wanted to be Christopher Reeve's Superman. Reeve was well aware of this character's legacy, and he took his role of Superman as a responsibility, as he explained in this interview, which was conducted a few years after he suffered paralysis following an equestrian accident. I felt really, in a way, the torch had been passed from previous generations of actors and readers, you know, who had loved Superman. Um, so I felt that during the 70s and 80s, I was the, uh, the temporary custodian of a, of a part that is an essential piece of American mythology. You know, a lot of times we get locked into the things that we grew up with as kids, and they become the only real version of a character. Some people grew up with Sean Connery's James Bond, and to them, Sean Connery's the only real James Bond. For a lot of people younger than me that grew up with the Star Wars prequels, they take offense at the fact that older people like myself think that they are subpar disappointments because as they were growing up, those were their Star Wars films. When I was growing up, Michael Keaton was quote-unquote my Batman, but I found something to appreciate in almost every subsequent portrayal of the character. But to me, Christopher Reeve is the only actor who has truly tapped into what Superman has always meant in my heart and in my estimation. He's a benevolent visitor from another world with a good heart and a true desire to lead humanity to become their best selves. He has an unshakable hope for the future of his adopted home. And while he feels the burden of heroism, he never loses that hope for humanity. He sees his role as one of incorruptible good. They can be a great people, Kal-El, they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. Some people say that makes Superman boring. I think it makes him more interesting. I think he should be flawless. I think he should stand above and apart from everyone else because he doesn't see himself that way. In my heart, Superman doesn't use his powers as a barrier. He uses them as a beacon to light the way for humanity. And when I think about the character of Superman, I think about Christopher Reeve, high above all of us, looking down at the earth and smiling at what he sees. Is it simple? Is it perhaps a little too plain? Maybe. But life just feels a little better that way.
This is where I usually talk about the special features on the disc of the movie that we're talking about each week, but we're actually going to be close to a to-be-continued episode here on All My Movies because next week we're going to talk about the movie whose production literally overlapped with this movie, Superman 2, the replacement of Richard Donner as director, the entry of Richard Lester into Superman's history books, and the story behind the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2, the progenitor of the Snyder cut of Justice League. I think it's a really interesting story because Superman 2, as it came out, isn't exactly a dog. As a matter of fact, I think that it is one of the best superhero sequels of all time. So we will break down that version of the movie, the Richard Donner version of the movie, and continue the legacy of Christopher Reeve's turn in the character right here next week. I look forward to having that conversation with you, but until then, it's time to go back on the show. See you next week.